community and what that looks like in general. What does it look like in our lives? What does it look like to live out um, this community that we've been called into uh, by Scripture? Today, what we're going to do is close this series down talking about bless. What does it mean uh, to truly bless the community around us? What does it mean to bless others? So we're going to look at a couple pieces of Scripture, and what we're going to see are four things. A mandate to do it, the magnitude at which we're to do it, the motivation by which we're to do it, and the method by which we're to do it. So four M's. We're going to use alliteration today, like, you know, good old-time Baptist or something. It's going to be good. You're going to enjoy this. And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 22. So we'll put that up on the screen, which... uh, Someone comes to Jesus and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what's happening here is is this person is essentially asking Jesus, what's the most important thing to do? What do I do? And that's easy, Jesus says. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. So clearly, what we can immediately take from that is while we are here, we are to love. We're here to bless God and neighbor. Love God, first and foremost. Be devoted to God, bless God. And then secondly, love our neighbors. So there's a mandate immediately, directly from Christ, to be devoted to our neighbors and to bless them. Which begs the question, who is my neighbor? And so we turn to Luke chapter 10. It says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, and he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's been listening. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the man desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus is dealing with uh, religious people, with scholars, with people who know what they're doing. And this is an expected exchange, probably, for for Jesus. He's not surprised by the question, and and the guy probably shouldn't be surprised if he's been following Jesus for any amount of time. He shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' answer. Because in the Old Testament of Scripture, there's probably 700 laws that Jesus is then going to boil down into this, this one little bit. In trying to trap Jesus, what happens is he falls into a Jesus trap. Because it says, desiring to justify himself. The man was desiring to justify himself. So he's saying one of two things. He's kind of, in one sense, saying, let's be reasonable here, Jesus. You can't expect me to do all of the law. And then he's also saying, give me the line. Draw the line of salvation for me. So so I know how much I need to do to, to get over it. If he's a religious person, he's saying, God will accept me if I do enough. God will accept me if I'm virtuous enough. God will accept me if I do the right things. So in response to a religious person's religious question, Jesus basically says, there's a lot of laws. Which one do you think? And then the man summarizes the law, and Jesus says, yep, that'll do. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and body and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's still vague. It still doesn't make a ton of sense to the guy, and so he, he's looking for more explanation. And maybe there's this tension growing as they relate to each other. There's this tension that maybe Jesus is messing with the religious worldview. And so, so what he responds with is, is basically, you can't mean I have to love everybody. That can't be the line. That can't be the standard. And so, so Jesus, I'm really asking for the minimum standard, so, so tell me, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Verse 31. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds. He poured oil, poured on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, the man says, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, you go do likewise. The hero of Jesus' story meets basic human needs for the, the, the man who had fallen into the ditch. The man who's been accosted by robbers is laying, bleeding out, close to death. And the hero just meets basic human needs, and yet they're incredibly costly and sacrificial. And yet it's holistic as well, isn't it? Emotional needs, physical needs, financial needs, medical needs, logistical needs. How do I get him to the end? I'll use my transportation. So think about this answer, and then reconsider the question. What is the absolute core of what God means when he says, love your neighbor? The implication here is that it means to meet the needs of those around you, even people who don't believe what you believe at all. Meet the needs of those around you, even at great cost and personal risk to yourself. This is gospel neighboring. To meet the concrete needs of people around you with such costliness and sacrifice that someone needs to hear the gospel to try to make sense out of your life and your inexplicable actions. See, so often we get this confused. We, we love people thinking in a religious sense. We want to love them so that we might um, be able to share the gospel. If I love them, then that, that's an excuse. So I'll deliver this thing, this bit of um, aid, this bit of whatever, and that's my excuse to then hit them with the gospel punch. Jesus explains a scenario where somebody loves in such a way that it is only in light of the gospel of sacrifice and provision that the behavior makes any sense at all. So the mandate is clear, and now we start to see the magnitude of what Christ is asking us to do when it means love my neighbor. We try to limit, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we try to limit who we bless. Most of us would choose someone like ourselves. What you need to understand is that the Jew who has been accosted, the Jew who is in trouble, the Jew by the side of the road, he and the Samaritan are bitter enemies. And it's an enormous statement that absolutely anyone can be a neighbor because it's beyond any limit we can construct. This is, well, this is you laying in the ditch and a member of ISIS coming over and looking at you and having compassion and paying for your well-being, paying for your care. That's what this is analogous to. These are people who are bitter enemies. So the question of who do we bless, who is my neighbor, the, the answer is anyone who has need. To which the man seems to ask Jesus, even those who aren't like me? And Jesus' response in the parable seems to indicate he's saying, especially those who aren't like me. We try to limit when we bless. 
Do we bless people when they suffer unjustly? When there's some tragedy that was out of their control and so we feel like they didn't deserve this and we need to help them? And most people will nod, yeah, that's a good time to bless somebody, and it is. Do we bless people when they suffer because of their own bad choices and their own fault? That's harder. Samaritan looks upon a Jew. And this is not an individualistic society. And so to go back into that moment, you have to see that the Samaritan sees himself as all of Samaria and sees the Jew as all of Israel. He sees this as not one and one. This is enemies in a broader sense. The oppressor is in the ditch, is what he was thinking. And he deserved it. For the way they've treated us, he deserves it. They deserve it. He has every right to think that. And he didn't say that. He decided to see through to an individual. So when we choose to group everyone together and erase their humanity as in some giant group, however we decide to do that, race or ethnicity, economic status, their decision history, their social standing, whatever it is, that we say, well, they seem to deserve it. Or when we reduce people to their worst decision, well, he did that, so I guess he got what's coming to him. What we do is we erase their fundamental humanity and we deny our own fundamental humanity. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Who here wants to be identified only by your worst decision? Who here wants to be identified only by your biggest mistake? The reality is we are radically complex beings with histories that even predate our existence. I was explaining to my eight-year-old, we're talking about going to college. And she was like, yeah, you know, I think I want to go to college. I said, I don't think you think. I think you're going to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to, Dad, and I want to be a, you know, she's eight, which is the weirdest thing in the world. She's like, I think I want to be an accountant. And I'm like, what? I can like barely count to 10, and she wants to work with numbers. And, and she said, you know, does everybody go to college? I said, well, no. She goes, but you did, and Mom did. Yeah, yeah. And then I started to explain to her, I said, look, you're, you're really lucky. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you get to go to college probably because we went to college, and we're going to make sure you can go to college, but, but it isn't to our credit. And I started recounting for her this complex history as I walked back where I said, you know what, I got to go to college because my dad— was raised in such a way that he was allowed to go to college because his dad was in the military and his dad worked really hard and had 10 kids and somehow put them all through and sacrificed a ton. And so my dad went to college because his dad sacrificed. You know why he went to college? Because his dad worked 70 hours a week to give them some middle-class existence. And you know why he was able to do that? Because he was an orphan in in Europe that got adopted in the late 19th century. And so he could have gone in a whole different avenue, but because somebody in 1893 adopted an orphan, brought him into his family, an Englishman takes in this European orphan, makes him his own, creates a life trajectory that never existed previous to that moment. My life has changed. My children's life has changed. That's complex. How I got to be in a place where my children expect to go to college is really complex. And it's not to my credit. The same is true of our worst days and our worst mistakes. So often we assign worst intentions to people who end up in the ditch. 
And yet if we start driving back a complex history of how someone gets there, so much while we assign agency and we, people are responsible for the decisions and all of that is true. To deny the complexity of someone else's life in the same way that we would assign our own. It just doesn't make any sense. Love your neighbor begins with acknowledging complexity of situations and circumstances. There's no little boy or girl sitting in first grade dreaming of being a jerk, dreaming of being destitute or addicted. That doesn't happen. Nobody says, I do on their wedding day and hopes to be signing divorce papers. It doesn't happen. But through life and the complexity of life and the complication of life and the heartbreak of life and the tragedy of life and the fallenness of man, we get there. And so we personalize it then. And we say, what would it mean to love neighbor as self? It helps us to eliminate the idea that we only help those who deserve it. Jesus looked down upon us, and though not one of us was deserving of his sacrifice, he still gave his life for us. We bless the undeserving because Jesus gave his life, though not one of us deserved his mercy and grace. So if we are to be like Jesus, we bless the undeserving. Others would say, you know, I would help, but I have my own debt. I have my own need. I I can't afford to help. Jesus was clever. The road to Jericho is a dangerous road. Anybody walking that road is exposing themselves to danger first and foremost. And so the man who's lying bloody on the side of the road, he knew what he was getting into. And there's caves and hills all along the road. There actually, speculation, there's, there's an area called the Pass of Blood. It was literally called the Pass of Blood because it was so dangerous that, that robbers would just pick people off. And so there's some that have speculated this is probably where this took place on this well-known road. This was at the Pass of Blood. And the priest and the Levite, in worldly terms, are pretty smart. Because if someone is still alive on the side of the road, that means the attack didn't happen that long ago. So the priest and Levite moved to the other side of the road to try to avoid attack themselves. Because the attacker could still be nearby. For the Samaritan to stop, he was risking everything. When you saw someone suffering on the side of that road by the pass of blood, you moved to the other side because you don't want to be anywhere near him lest it just be a second trap. And the Samaritan decides to stop. So he's risking his life. Here's what Jesus is saying. What I'm calling you to do, gospel neighboring, what I'm calling you to do is to bless others in a way that is beyond what you would even see as radical. Bless those you would normally hate. Bless those who would bring destruction upon themselves. Bless others at great personal cost. If we bless like Jesus gave his life. So there is no greater gift than we can give than to pour out our lives on behalf of others. Our South African pastor would tell mission teams all the time, keep your checkbook. I'd rather have the investment of your heart in my people. Everyone can afford that. Everyone can afford that. And everyone has experience to draw on and life tragedy to pull from and, and, and all this experience to, to drag up and say, you know what, I've been there. Or you know what, I haven't been there, but I know this person in our community who's been there. And as I look upon this community, I see this rich, like, just tapestry of experience. That there's not much that someone can go through in life that someone in here hasn't gone through. Which is to say that our community represents an incredible safety net for anybody out there who might go through anything. Because while I might not have gone through this, this, and this, you have, and you have, and you have, and she has. And I can connect you real quick, and we can love you. 
radically with our lives. And this is the motivation of it. The final thing that Jesus says is he upends religion. He says every religion says to help the poor. This is true, right? Every religion says to help the poor. The poor are always a focus of every religious endeavor. Buddhism helped the poor. Islam helped the poor. Hinduism helped the poor. They take up alms. They take up offerings. Jesus drops two moral religious people into his story, the priest and the Levite. It is literally their job to help the poor, to hand out alms. So if blessing others is a moral and religious duty, when the time comes and it gets too dangerous, we'll go to the other side of the road too. Jesus is saying, don't commit to bless somebody out of guilt. Don't commit to bless them out of religion. It isn't about religion. Jesus is not giving us a new to-do list in religion, but a new paradigm of his relationship with us. He places the hearer, the man he's talking to, who's a Jew, he places him in a precarious spot. He puts the Jew in the story on the ground bleeding. Because this is the only way this man can learn what it means to radically bless others. And that's to have been radically blessed himself. So only in identifying with someone who's been blessed does he understand what it means to go and bless someone else. So the man says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was a neighbor to the man that was like you? To which he says, the one who showed him mercy. Rather than a rule for blessing, Jesus shows him the heart for blessing. So the gospel says Jesus came into the world and onto our road. That that we might be put into that story. That he owes us nothing but rejection. That the scripture says we were God's enemies. We owe him everything. And he's been trying our whole lives to become our own gods, to become our own savior, to save ourselves with enough good works. We're desperate and we are helpless. And we know there is something missing. So we come to the place on the road and we realize we are dying. And religion walks to the other side of the road. Religion says, don't have time for you. More good works to do. And Jesus had compassion. Like in verse 33, he says the Samaritan had compassion. Jesus had compassion upon us. Jesus sees the lost and the hurting and the dying. And it says he wept. Jesus didn't just risk his life to bring us to safety. Jesus gave his life to bring us to safety. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become righteousness in him. So if you see blessing in the way that Jesus dealt with you, if you are reminded and stirred by the way that Jesus saw us on the side of the road and came and knelt down and took care of every need at the cost of his life, then it fundamentally changes the way that you see the world. If you can see that, you can begin to love like this, which informs the method. Together we commit to loving people, body and soul. Together we bless without agenda, without qualification, knowing that God is faithful to bring those in. But we can't do it alone. If we try to do it alone, the weight crushes us. We can't do what Christ did. We are not him. But together, the Bible says we are the body of Christ. The spirit of God is in us. We are designed to function in such a way that we would carry on his work in his absence. And so we have groups that are doing that right now. A group that exists to bless the international students of the city. Not worried about what religion you are. Not worried about what faith you were brought up in. Not worried about whether you believe today or skeptic tomorrow. Come on over. We want to love you. We want to connect you. We want to serve you. We want to feed you. Why? Because Jesus loved us radically. And so we want to love you radically without agenda. 
It's a group here that made a commitment to, to bless people at a retirement home. That's going to be their cause. They went over and took desserts one night and somehow got roped into doing karaoke for uh, the old folks. And the stories uh, will make you cry with laughter hearing about how nobody copped to being able to sing and every single one of them was forced into this karaoke environment. Our group took uh, food and coffee to the teachers of an elementary school after the kids left school, the first day after school had let out. A bunch of public school teachers didn't know what to think. Steph started subbing once every couple weeks or so. And she walked into Kenwood Elementary School and someone says, I think I know you. Where are you. How do I know you? And Steph goes, I don't know. And she said, you're one of those people from Covenant that came and brought us all that stuff. So five months later, people are still talking about this weird, radical love. There's no shortage of ways that we can reach out and bless others. But what we know to be true is we can't do it alone. We do it together because sustainability doesn't happen when I take on the weight of the world and try to run it through to bless the world. It happens when I lean on you and you lean on me and together we lean on Christ and we go, we are going to see the city blessed. We are designed to function together. We are called to bless together. It is together that we have the greatest reach and ability to see people blessed. An ultimate blessing is not simply in seeing their needs met, but it's seeing their souls saved. And the display that we put out is the invitation in to following Christ. It is in this blessing that God so often chooses to transform lives. And not just other people's lives, but our lives. One of the largest, strongest horses in the world is the Belgian draft horse. Competitions are held to see which horse can pull the most, and one Belgian draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. Weird thing is if you put the Belgian horses in a harness, you put two of them together who've never met, two strangers. You put them together, together the two horses can pull twenty to 24,000 pounds. So one horse pulls 8,000, two horses can pull up to three times that amount represents the power of synergy, the power of togetherness, and yet here's where it gets really interesting. If the two horses are raised together, you take two Belgian draft horses and you raise them together and you train them together. They can learn to think and pull as one. And so the trained and therefore unified pair pulls between 30 and 32,000 pounds, four times as much as a single horse. If we were only unified as a people, training together, growing together, pulling as one. Whether that's in a community group, whether that's with your group of friends, whether that's with a a set of believers that are from all different churches, it doesn't matter. If we are in this together, on the mission together, training together, growing together, unified as one, saying we will pull this weight together, imagine what we might do. What one of us could do, two of us does four times as much. About 20 of us, or 150 of us. If we loved God with all of our hearts, and together we loved our neighbor as ourselves, imagine the impact that could be had in this city for the kingdom. And so your challenge today is to choose a pocket of people. Choose somebody to go and bless. Choose somebody to pour life into. And then overwhelm them with gospel-soaked blessing.
do what Jesus called us to do, to serve radically at the cost of our lives, to give our lives away in the service of others. So that when we stand before him in a moment like this and we go, so who was his neighbor? The clear answer is the one who shows mercy and the clear direction from Jesus to those of us who are still asking the question is go and do likewise. Go and show mercy, gospel-soaked mercy for the kingdom's sake, for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your son. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you would send him to give his life on our behalf, that our sinfulness and our fallenness, God, we couldn't heal ourselves, we couldn't fix ourselves, we couldn't save ourselves, and we acknowledge that. God, thank you for sending Jesus to save us and heal us and fix us and make us whole. I pray that you would recenter us on that salvation and that you would remind us, Father, that we are here as your body, that we are collectively called to be your hands and your feet to serve and to bless and to overwhelm the world with grace and mercy and goodness and hope. I pray that you would stir in our hearts, you would give us a vision for who it is that we might reach, who it is that we might love, who it is that we might invite into this way of life that we live. This beautiful, secure, grace-filled existence. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for today. Send us today, Lord, with a spark that we might go and set this world on fire for you. God, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.